0: the hyperconnected world allows people to really screw around with your life if um, all they really need to know is some of your personal information, and they can start screwing with a lot of different uh, pieces of your life that you're taking for
1: granted. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello and welcome to another episode of Decentralized This presented by Enigma. I'm Torbear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma and on today's episode I am speaking with Jamison Lop. Jameson is an experienced engineer. He's been working full-time in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space since 2015 and he's contributed to a number of different projects. He's currently the CTO of Casa which builds best-in-class key management solutions, as well as Casa Node, which is a Bitcoin and Lightning node that can be used in your home. He's also the creator of Statoshi, a fork of Bitcoin Core that aims to analyze statistics of Bitcoin nodes. Jameson writes very frequently on Bitcoin, on personal privacy, security, and a lot of other topics. On this episode, he's going to talk with me about what it means to be a cypherpunk, how his own extreme experiences have shaped his perspective on privacy and security, how individuals can be better incentivized to solve systemic issues, and how Casa, in particular is empowering users and enabling a more decentralized ecosystem. Jameson has faced down some really difficult challenges, sometimes on the technical side, sometimes on the personal side, but he's always persevered, and he's been an incredible advocate for Bitcoin and for decentralization, as well as individual privacy. I hope his story and his vision inspires you like it inspires me. So without any further introduction, here is Jameson Lopp. Jameson, thank you so much for joining me on Decentralize This. I'm thrilled to have you, man. Pleasure to be here. So every episode starts the same way, just quickly, professionally, personally. Who is Jameson Lopp? Well,
0: I am a computer science guy, a technologist who got interested in Bitcoin a number of years ago, started some projects of my own to try to better understand it, and eventually found myself working on private key security full time uh, for BitGo. Did that for about three years and now am doing a similar thing, but even more broadly trying to increase personal sovereignty for people who are operating in this space at a company called Casa, where I am the CTO working on managing a number of different initiatives where we're trying to find the the Parts of the ecosystem where there's a lot of potential, but it's still too technically complicated for most people to fully realize this thing that Bitcoin and and public permissionless crypto has offered to the world.
1: I want to talk about all of that. I want to talk about the the idea of personal sovereignty. I want to talk about Bitcoin and and, and keys. I want to talk about Casa uh, specifically. But I, I I want to start at least by saying like you you're a self described cypherpunk. And I want to know what you think that means, like in your own words, like what's the definition? And then I want to know if this was something you think that was like nature or nurture. Like were you were you kind of born this way or did have things happen to you that have kind of like solidified this worldview and identity?
0: Sure. It's uh, an interesting topic and and I actually find it kind of amusing when um, various media publications put quotations around, you know, self-proclaimed cypherpunk. (laughs) I've actually spoken about this a little bit um, because uh, there is no uh, set of credentials for being a cypherpunk. You do have to self-proclaim that this is a philosophy that you believe in because a cypherpunk is just someone who advocates for privacy enhancing technologies because they believe that greater adoption of privacy enhancing technologies will lead to social change that will make the world a better place for people. Uh, That's the very high level gist of it um, is, you know, trying to empower people against corporate surveillance, against uh, nation state surveillance, against any type of uh, privacy harming technologies that have have come about uh, with you know the rise in the internet age and communication era. It's um it's been very very easy for us to give up our privacy in return for some convenience, and so it's a very difficult thing to push back against that. Uh, it it requires you know some conscious effort, but also um, there are. Cypherpunks out there who are trying to make technologies that are more user-friendly so that we can hopefully Move towards a world where privacy is the default rather than the exception and you know as for myself I I definitely was not uh, a cypherpunk um, Until I really got into Bitcoin in fact I was kind of an anti cypherpunk uh, as as much as I hate to admit it um, the first eight years of my career, I worked for an online marketing company. Uh, they were primarily focused on email marketing, but suffice to say that my job was to perform large-scale data analysis using distributed uh, data clusters, actually actual Google technology with the Hadoop and MapReduce system of uh, distributed data to process, I don't even know how many petabytes worth of data on, on a, a daily basis in order to, you know, figure out uh, various actions that that people were taking as a result of these 100 million plus emails a day that people were sending out through our system. So I was expending a lot of my time on an industry that I was never particularly uh, interested in, it just happened to provide me with some interesting computer science challenges. So uh, once I got into Bitcoin and the, the privacy space and I found myself able to actually transition to this industry, uh, it's been a lot more fulfilling since then.
1: It's incredible to see the journey of people who worked in these you know, legacy spaces because that's all there was, right? There wasn't a Bitcoin space to discover. It had to be made. And so many of the people who are behind so many of these high f- profile projects like, like Casa is now, you know, they've gone through these sort of similar transitions where the reason they're working so hard on the solutions is because they deeply understand the problems having not necessarily caused them. Um, but, you know, they they certainly were part of the system that perpetuated them. And for a lot of people, it seems like that was a big piece of the journey is being so close to the problem that they they felt even more compelled uh, to seek out the solutions and Bitcoin provided a path for them to do so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a lot more interesting to be around people who are more ideologically motivated than necessarily financially motivated. It's... um it's It's especially important for this type of nascent space that goes through uh, so many volatile hype cycles is mm-hmm. that you know if 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 most of us were here just because we we thought we could make a quick buck, then we would probably give up uh, you know after a ninety plus percent downturn and and it seems like uh, crypto is dead and everybody is is tired of talking about it. But uh, it's it it's the ideological motivation that gives us the drive to push through the uh, the volatile swings.
1: Yeah, I, I, I love that in a space that's trying to decentralize trust, it seems like so much of what gets built is the result of this trust that people do have in the motivations of people who have been in the space for years and who have weathered some of these you know market downturns and stayed committed to the core principles behind their project. And for somebody like you, who's worked on multiple projects, all connected, I think, by this same cypherpunk ideology... I think it's fair to say that n- nobody really questions your commitment to the space and to the and to the technologies at this point, just the trolls on twitter yeah i I've met some and and that's and that's fair to say but let's let's talk a little bit about that so you you have been you know the victim of some some really some really vicious stuff and, and it's coming into the news cycle again, you know, people who have been doxxed or harassed and all these other things. It's it's a it's a symptom, I guess, of, of the age that we find ourselves in, this hyper connected age. And mm-hmm. we're all potential victims. In this case, you know, uh, so I want to talk about a piece you wrote. uh, It was a great piece. It's so long, but so good. Mm -hmm. A, A modest privacy protection proposal from last year. And it was full of actionable, you know, calls to action, very thorough. What made you decide to write that piece at that time about personal privacy and steps we can all take to protect ourselves?
0: Uh, well, I refuse to be a victim. That, that's pretty much what it comes down to. I mean, um, after the incident, when my whole neighborhood got shut down by police and, uh, it actually went about as well as it could have, uh, it could have ended a lot worse for sure. Um, and I talk about that in uh, another uh, blog post where I basically, um, go through all the details of what happened that day. But, um, I realize that there is this uh, imbalance it's it's the the result of the internet age and people being able to you know communicate anonymously with law enforcement uh, at least in the United States people are able to expend a very large amount of public resources and basically direct it as an attack at other people simply by saying the right things. Mm. You know, simply by using trigger words like a uh, hostage or bomb or gun or, or what have you. And and if they hit the right trigger words, then they're basically uh, performing a successful social engineering attack on our law enforcement departments, which have opened themselves up to this type of social engineering attack. So um, you know, that's one thing that I talked about in my, um, kind of reminiscing post is that, yeah, I definitely blame the person who made that call and, and harassed me and tried to extort me. But, you know, I, I, my root cause analysis actually takes it a step further and says, you know, it's, it's actually law enforcement that is creating this exploitable vulnerability. So we shouldn't be
1: surprised it's that people systemic are exploiting weakness, it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So the, the, the modest privacy protection proposal it seems to focus mostly on, like, despite the fact that the weaknesses are with the system itself, it wasn't so much prescriptive as to, like, how do we change these systems? That one was more focused on what can we do as individuals to not become victims?
0: Yeah, and the the reason why the post was so long is because I was trying to cover as many different uh, threat vectors as possible. And, of course, some of these threat vectors are more common. It's, you know, uh, just browsing around on the internet and having all of your data hoovered up by a hundred different, uh, advertising analytics systems. Like that's a very common thing, uh, that, you know, people can fairly easily protect themselves against. And then the other extreme end is what I've done, uh, which is, you know, setting up all of these, uh, protective legal entities to basically act as proxies to, to shroud my true ownership and physical location and, and, and things that could be used to, uh, basically, direct law enforcement or other physical attacks at myself.
1: So why is it so important for the average person? And I, and I think it's safe to say you're not the average person, even though in, in some ways you are like you're 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 deeper into some spaces that I think have maybe some more bad actors than others. But why is it so important for all of us to be protecting our privacy and concerned about our privacy, even for people who feel like, you know, and this is in quotes, they have nothing to hide?
0: It's quite simply because you can't predict the future and uh, the combination of that with this hyper-connected world that we have created. Uh, I think I, I give an example or two in my post of just normal people who, you know, weren't uh, particularly uh, extreme in their views or their actions who could make a single Uh, poorly thought out post on social media and have a resulting backlash of, you know, millions of outraged people. And, you know, once you start looking at the large numbers of people that uh, you can easily reach these days with a few keystrokes, then you start doing the math and realizing, you know, even if only one in a thousand or one in 10,000 people out there Has some sort of mental issue that could cause them Hmm. to to try to attack a complete stranger because of something that they read Then you realize that you're actually you're you're creating a very uh, Large attack surface just by using the internet to publicly broadcast your own opinions and um, you know some some I guess more Recent examples around that are really if you look at at almost anything in the political space these days uh, we're, we're even seeing instances of of, you know, fairly young, you know, children, teenagers um, Activists who were at various protests and other political actions Who are either? doing something that gets taken out of context or they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and something blows up on social media, whether it's a photo or a quick video clip or whatever, and that instantly triggers and outrages millions of people. And and that is this triggering action that can result in you uh, accidentally, unintentionally finding yourself at risk of, of physical harm, of financial harm, um... And, and uh, any number of digital attacks and sabotages um, because of, once again, the hyperconnected world that allows people to really screw around with your life if um, all they really need to know is some of your personal information and they can start screwing with a lot of different uh, pieces of your life that you're taking for granted.
1: The way I refer to it is with leverage. Like we've created a lot of leverage in these hyperconnected systems, where a single person can have an outsized impact on us, on another single person, or like a network mm-hmm. of people, with just a little bit of social engineering or misinformation. Uh, you know, there's there's so many. Like SIM swapping is another example of something that's happening a lot, specifically in the crypto space. It, it might happen less often outside it, but inside it, it's it's not just you know. It's a threat to your data, but it's also a threat to your livelihood because people are, are using this to, you know, steal private keys and, and access exchange accounts. And there, there's a lot of stories of people who've been victimized by this. And and really, the attack vector there is just if you've got somebody who works at an AT&T store on your side, that might be all it takes to get into somebody's account if they haven't gone through these steps and taken the proper precautions in advance of the attack.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the this is – just another problem with trusted third parties. And so, you know, the only way that I found to, to really guard yourself against that type of attack where you, you have some sort of account, some sort of system that is administered by a trusted third party, then if you want to take it to the extreme, um, you have to assume that that trusted third party may get socially engineered. Therefore, the only way to use them and Still be protected is to use them anonymously so that you know, even if someone does attack that trusted third party They don't know which account actually belongs to you
1: Yeah uh, There's a lot of actionable suggestions like that, that that you made in this very long post as I said but one one thing that you note at the beginning of the article is that you're looking sometimes at thousands of dollars in costs for for putting in these protections for, for something that's, you know, not certain to happen to you. It's, it's a very expensive form of insurance against mm-hmm. uh, against yourself. So it's clear that when it comes to privacy as individuals, we're we're bearing the costs in in more ways than one. There's the cost of, as you're saying, like the data being hoovered around the Internet by by whomever pretty much everybody at this point. Um, and then there's all of these you know prescriptions that you're laying out in this article, which can be effective but expensive. What can we do to you know bring some of these costs down for the individual while still you know preserving the efficacy of the solutions? And do you see any promising solutions that are arising now?
0: I think it's going to be a pretty long road uh, to actually get to like mainstream improvement of all of this. Like uh, ultimately, I think that what needs to happen is we need to break up the data silos. We we need so if you, you look at, at Bitcoin and, and what some of the other public permissionless uh, crypto assets have done is they have managed to strip a lot of power out of the hands of trusted third parties and intermediaries and put them into the hands of the individual. And so Bitcoin did that with money. But if we want to do that for, for other sectors, then we're going to have to build similar systems whose functionality is meant to do that except, you know, for other data, for other important uh, aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's going to be a really long road, not just to build the technology, but to transition to that t- sort of system, because there's just so many um, problems that are hindering adoption, not just like technical scalability problems, but usability problems, security problems. This is why, I've been working in this space for four years, and there are a lot of amazing people who are doing a lot of really cool cutting-edge technology that is really pushing the envelope of what's even technically possible. But I'm still sitting here after four years just doing private key security and management because I think that this is a fundamental problem that has not really been fully solved in a way that uh, is usable for the average person.
1: Yeah. I mean, a big focus of our project, right? Like at Enigma is is this whole data privacy issue and building the technologies around it. But the point of having a podcast, the point of having this opportunity is to kind of tell this story about how hard it actually is to make this stuff get mainstream adoption, to have it, you know, and that's not just on a cost basis, like making this stuff cost effective for the end user, but just, you know, getting into into the hands of as many people as possible, making it usable and, and so on. Like that's that is such a, a difficult process. And as you said, as we go through these various hype cycles, people not only overestimate the value of some of these technologies or or maybe they overestimate the speculative value of these technologies, and they're underestimating the amount of time it takes to build things the right way, things that you know don't have so many attack vectors, th- things that work. Right, and it's like such a crazy position to say like I want these things faster, when all that's going to do is make them less secure.
0: Well, there's also there's this fundamental problem that, well, we're we're trying to solve systemic issues, right. and it's really hard to sell an individual user. On solving a systemic issue, you know whether that's you know solving money by you know creating sound digital money, or whether it's by you know solving ownership of various data so that they don't have to keep it in the cloud, and and that's because a, a lot of the time when these things fail, you know it's somebody else who gets hurt. Um, it's it's almost like it's it's hard to sell someone on it unless you're fear mongering and you you don't really want to take that type of approach when it comes to like sales and marketing,
1: not generally, but if the problem is terrifying enough, you know it's really sometimes hard to avoid right like it, it, in the sense that i'm I'm not going to go down this road very far, but you know in the sense of like <laughs> climate change if you if you want people to act on a systemic issue, you know sometimes you have to talk about the catastrophic potential of ignoring it. Less so than about like the incremental gains to be made for the individual by you know putting some of their own resources toward the solution. It is we are facing. I would I would say some real existential threats based on the erosion of privacy, uh, but also just based on like you're saying these these systems that people are learning to exploit in a in a systemic way. So what what do you think is the role of the people who do create and maintain all these systems that we use and this could be anyone right what's the role of technologists building these systems what's the role of business people marketing these systems and and what is going to end up being the role of people in government who are designing and enforcing these systems you know like who fixes the police
0: (laughs) that's yeah that is um a very you know broad and hard to to forecast type of, of issue. I mean, the usually when when we start getting towards that type of um, discussion, um, I've had this conversation with a, a few different people about uh, you know crypto anarchy and you know sort of my uh, beliefs and my goal of you know how we can use this technology to create a more voluntary society. Mm-hmm. Um, because basically, I I see that uh, various social services and and goods that are provided by nation states, technically, uh, there's no reason why pretty much all of them can't be privatized, but there is a huge gap between how we get from you know this hierarchical command and control structure that has been built up over millennia. Uh, to a a more sovereign structure where you can actually manage these uh, goods and services that you want yourself um, it 's because what what governments have done is they have offloaded uh, quite a substantial amount of cognitive load from the individual to have to worry about those things. so the individual they just have to pay their taxes and you know follow the guidelines that the government imposes upon them. And they get all of these services in return. But if we're going to move to a system where uh, you're really only paying for things that you want to use, that you're interested in, now you have a huge coordination problem. And that's one of the areas that I think this type of technology needs to be built up in order to to help people with that. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be too much... Uh, work for people to to find much value in it. So th- I mean, there's a lot that needs to be done um, in order to to make this uh, these you know solutions actually attractive to people. Because you know people are lazy. Um, if if it if it involves much more effort on their part, then uh, they're they're more likely to stick with whatever the incumbent thing is, even if there's a lot of good reasons of why the incumbent thing is harmful to them in various ways.
1: Yeah, there's substantial switching costs, and, and I guess one of the, you know, the cost to all of this is the, is the risk that you try to change things and you make them much worse in the meantime. And I, I guess one of my personal worries is that we get to these tipping points along the way as we're transitioning from, from, as you're saying, this very hierarchical world to a more decentralized, self-sovereign world, and along the way, we do something that actually tips us all into total anarchy. And mm-hmm. and everything breaks, is that is that a concern that that you have, or is it like relative to your other concerns? It's it seems like a silly thing to worry about. I guess I kind of
0: take a, a somewhat fatalistic view on it, um, kind of like with the climate change stuff as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is that um, you know we have these very huge problems, uh, some of them are like tragedy of the commons type of problems. And, um, you know, if, if humanity can't figure out how to solve it, then humanity deserves to become extinct. Uh, so, you know, from, from that standpoint, uh, it is kind of up to all of us and, but I'm, I'm generally optimistic that, you know, even like with with climate change that there are uh, a number of technologists that are working on trying to reverse climate change and you know it may not be as simple as you know we need to all stop using uh, carbon-based fuels within x number of years uh, you know we, we may even see some technological breakthroughs that allow us to uh, revert some of the harm that we are doing by being so slow at a uh, at uh, switching over to more uh, renewable and uh, eco-friendly type of power sources. So, uh, you know, engineering society, on the other hand, um, I guess I I also take just more of a, a market-driven approach of like uh, ultimately this this is all you know people deciding what it is that they really want, like how they want to interact with other humans in their society. And so whether that's through governments or through some sort of other technologically uh, constructed mechanism, um, I mean, we need to experiment. And uh, and hopefully it doesn't blow up in our faces and destroy the world. But, it, you know, if you want to start thinking about catastrophic scenarios, there are so many ways that uh, we could use our power uh, today to accidentally destroy everything, you know, not just you know by accidentally uh, creating World War III and a nuclear holocaust, but there's from a technological standpoint so many things that could go wrong with you know, for example, uh, you know, biological engineering creating something that uh, wipes out all of humanity, or even nanotechnology. Um, I would say I'm actually most most afraid of nanotechnology. Have you ever heard of the Grey Goo scenario?
1: Oh, yes. The, and the nanobots. <laughs> oh, yes.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the, it's just there's so many different ways that humanity could screw up and just completely destroy our entire civilization that um, I'm not sure it's worth uh, spending too much time worrying about. Either we're going to make it or we're not. But on, on that standpoint, I, I do think that the folks like Elon Musk have a pretty good idea that, you know, we need to further... Distribute humanity across multiple planets. So then, even if we do screw up Earth, there's a little (laughs) bit of hope that some humans will survive. The ultimate,
1: the (laughs) ultimate decentralization project. Exactly. So this is a good transition because now we can talk specifically about the relationship between decentralized technologies and and all of these kinds of risks that we're talking about. You know, I want to talk about specifically Bitcoin. You know, what what is The relationship between a decentralized technology like Bitcoin and everything we've kind of talked about so far. To what extent do decentralized technologies contribute to solutions? Is it just that they're an alternative to current systems or are they a valuable form of experimentation? Or are we currently building the foundation for a a new type of society where self-sovereignty is possible for individuals?
0: I mean, uh, I think it's all of the above, you know, different, different people who are using the system or interacting with it are, are basically viewing it from different angles. And so not everyone in the Bitcoin space is trying to build a new society. Um, some of them are just there because, you know, they can trade numbers on exchanges and make larger numbers or... Um, you know, some of them are there because they see a, a slightly more efficient uh, payment rail, uh, or um, some of them are, are actually using Bitcoin for, for various like uh, data anchoring, data integrity type of, of services. Mm-hmm. Um, but this much much more like long term view, uh, I think, is only held by a, a subset of people in the space. And everyone's going to keep working on whatever interests them the most. And, you know, sometimes that will result in clashes. Uh, it's I think the, the nature of having a system that no one controls is that because there are so, such a diverse uh, set of perspectives of people who uh, are using the system and want to see it evolve in different ways, that, that's ultimately why we see so many arguments and toxicity and and drama uh, in this space. But um, that's, I think, the nature of, you know, anarchy or lack of governance or whatever you want to call it.
1: So that's that's my next question is, you know, is this diversity of motivations, the diversity of opinions about the purpose of Bitcoin or the nature of, of Bitcoin? Is that part of how bitcoin is decentralized and as a broader question right to what extent is bitcoin decentralized versus still uh, an example of a centralized system
0: it's very hard to quantify decentralization um you know yes, a lot of people tend s- to just use it as like a binary attribute uh but you know i think that if we're looking at one of these systems they're extremely complex and talking about centralization or decentralization is this like multi-variable set of spectrums. And, and so, you you know, you can say that, you know, along certain, uh, attributes, it's more decentralized than some other system or whatever. But,
1: um, well, give me an example of like one way in which you can definitively say it's more decentralized and then maybe one, One dimension because I completely agree with you that this is a spectrum and it's and it's multivariate. So but but I want to be specific about like in what ways do you think like it is decentralized to its benefit and other ways in which it might be like one specific attribute where there there are still centralized elements.
0: Well, the one of the most decentralized attributes is just the the node ownership and that is fairly uh, obvious to look at on on various uh, graphs where we can see, you know, geographic distribution um but of course even that distribution is it's not, you know, equal across all com- countries or even like equally distributed across uh, populations or what have you. Sure. But it is certainly uh, decentralized, at least in the sense of like legal jurisdictions, um, which is, I think, one of the most important components if we're talking about uh, general security, um, because the ultimate level of security is against basically nation state attacks. You know, if the hmm. most powerful country in the world can't take down your system, then it's pretty secure. Uh, and so, you know, that's like internet level um, security, you know we've created a system that uh, even if large swaths of it are taken down and, and censored or whatever, you can route around those uh, affected regions.
1: That's a really that's a really interesting perspective. And, and uh, it sounds like your argument would be that's one of the most important elements of a system to decentralize if you want it to be sustainable, if you want it to be resilient.
0: And and that is you know assuming that all of these nodes are individual actors and not coordinated by some central uh, organization. <laughs> that is you know the the important part there. Um,
1: right. But there's mining. So what so what is a mining pool? Right. Like I, we we don't have to like put value judgments on any of this. It's just like we're describing the structure of a system. We're describing the collective motivations of individual actors and also coalitions of those actors.
0: Yeah. So you know from a a different perspective Uh, one of the more centralized aspects of Bitcoin is the the collection of hash power though uh, interestingly enough I I just tweeted something about that earlier today where um, you can actually look over time and see that there have been swings in hash power concentration across mining pools Um, generally the, the level of increasing concentration of hash power has occurred while technological changes have happened so when we went from the CPU to the GPU era and GPU to FPGA FP, or uh, era and then I think the finally the ASIC era there were you know a few different tiers in there but over the past uh, year or two the um, advancement of ASics and mining technology has really plateaued and so, Miners have had to compete over other variables, such as electricity costs and, uh, you know, ability to get like uh, favorable contracts, uh, both with with data centers and power uh, creation uh, facilities. And, and in some cases, even local governments getting tax breaks and stuff. And uh, and so we've actually seen that from that aspect, it has uh, at least from looking at the mining pool hash rates uh, has become more distributed, but, you know, still a long ways to go from, you know, a miner in every house type of distributed. Uh, I I think I wrote uh, an article in 2015 called The Future of Bitcoin Mining, in, in which I was really hoping... That we get to the point where we have tiny little embedded miners, kind of like the uh, the 21 computer um, project a few years ago, hmm. where you know you might even have a tiny little miner like in your water heater or something, where you know it's the excess heat is actually getting used for other purposes, right. and you're you're essentially buying your your Bitcoin uh, through your power bill, but in very tiny increments. So um, you know ultimately the fact that like mining has become industrialized is not great uh, because that does tend to create a, a smaller number of entities that are operating at large scales and therefore can be targeted by nation states. Um, I, I, th- uh, I think the biggest example of targeting has actually been happening in Venezuela where uh, mm, right. from what I've heard, like a number of of agents of the state have come in and actually seized mining equipment and and not just destroyed it but actually uh taken confiscated it and started mining on their own to their own benefit and so we would definitely uh hope that that doesn't happen in china for example because that could create some problems though i've i've heard various arguments uh about you know even in China, how decentralized the mining farms are, and that you know a lot of them are like out in the middle of nowhere, and would be really hard to get to all of them. But so it's a, it's a lot harder to quantify that type of thing. But you know, suffice to say that kind of like with full nodes, the ultimate level of decentralization would be a node in every home, and that by the way is actually something that we're trying to do at Casa. Hi, uh, uh-huh. here thing we with are. Miners. <laughs> the same thing with miners is a miner in every home would be the ultimate level of. Decentralization because ultimately what we're talking about is we want it uh, We want there to be so many doors that quote-unquote have to be kicked down that even powerful nation-states don't have the manpower to do that
1: Yeah, this this is where I really wanted to get to which is Casa and and we talked about like specifically like what are we doing to bring the cost for individuals down in terms of like how they participate in some of these systems that help us all in protecting privacy and creating decentralized systems and so on and so forth. So so what is CASA? Why are you building it? And what do you think CASA is contributing primarily uh, to this space?
0: So our mission at CASA very broadly is to help increase personal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And the first product that we put out was a key management product. It's our key master. It's basically a vault, this three of five multi-sig product. And it's, um, it's meant to be the most user-friendly and most high-security uh, cold storage wallet that is available on the market. Now, basically... The way this works is you have an iOS app or an Android app. And so it's, it's as simple as using a mobile app and it visualizes your key set on the app. And when you want to actually interact with your wallet to create a transaction or, or you know, check the health of your various keys or whatever, then uh, you have to go and find your hardware devices that are used to actually secure the keys and plug them in and uh, you know cryptographically sign messages or transactions. Now, what, what we've done with that product is, like I said, it's a multi-sig wallet. There are other multi-sig wallets out there. But it is also a hardware-based wallet. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about multiple Trezors, Ledgers. You know, we want to support any um, well-vetted hardware key management devices. And then finally, it's meant to be multi-location. So the idea that you never have multiple keys, multiple devices in the same location. And really what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to be the experts who think through all of the edge cases and all of the different attack vectors and loss vectors so that the user doesn't have to. So that all the user has to do is follow the directions on the screen in the app.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
0: will get them to a level of security and self-sovereignty that... Is possible to do on your own, but requires a lot more technical knowledge. So, um, Um, this one thing that I I I try to stress to people is that you know yes, we're we're protecting you against attack, but um, in our own my own experience and in uh, some of the reports that have been done by companies like Chainalysis, it's actually far more likely that you lose access to your private keys than than someone takes them from you. And so <laughs> we're we're trying to make this um, a system that is also robust against loss. and And one of the ways that we do that is we actually have gotten rid of the need for the user to have the recovery seed phrases. And uh, this is a much more dynamic type of wallet where if you lose a device or a device gets stolen or whatever, um, all you have to do is go buy a new Trezor Ledger, plug it into your app, and we actually have you know key rotation mechanism built into the software itself, so you don't even have to call us up and talk to us. Um, it's, a, it's a much more flexible type of, uh, of, of vault product.
1: It's such an interesting thing to be building for this space, just because like, it, it seems... And I want to stress that I don't believe that it is, but it seems contradictory in that you've built a product that's helping people become more self-sovereign as long as, you know, they trust Casa to have told them how to do this all correctly. And at the same time, it's like, like I said, I'm stressing that like I agree with you, like reducing the cognitive load on the user is the only way in which we get these technologies into as many different hands as possible there's just also this other component where again there it, it's not completely trustless so how how do you communicate when you're thinking about you're building these products how do you communicate to the user that you know they can trust essentially what you've built yeah
0: so there is multiple parts to this problem and you know, ultimately what we are aiming to be is a, a service provider and a support provider. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we are making this software available to our clients, um, but it's not just the software. We're also bundling in uh, almost like concierge-level service where you have a, a personal account manager who is available for you to call at any time. But from the trust aspect, you um, there are multiple components. Where, for example, one one important thing is that we are not creating our own hardware key management devices. We are using um, other common off the shelf ones like Trezor and Ledger, and so. We are at least distributing the trust around. So, you know, when you you set up a vault uh, wallet with us, we recommend that, you know, you get a, a Ledger Nano S, a Trezor Model One, and a Trezor Model T. Um, it's things like that to reduce any single point of failure and further distribute trust across multiple uh, reputable brands and entities. So that, you know, like you said, it's not trustless but we're minimizing trust as much as possible. And then we we take this trust minimization idea and build it into the app as well, where we're trying to offload as many queries as possible from our server so that it's not a single point of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now the server is basically acting as a coordinator uh for you know doing the multi-sig transactions, you know, applying one signature at a time. And it's also, you know, acting as a balance and, and lookup uh, mechanism. But that's actually where the CASA node starts to come into play, is that uh, we're trying to create complementary products such that if, if someone who is a, a premium tier user at CASA with our Vault product, they're they're going to automatically get any other products that, that we're also creating. And uh, if you have a node at home then we're going to support you you know pointing your wallet at the node so that you don't even have to trust us for balance and lookup stuff and uh, ultimately I also want the node to be able to act as the uh, multi-sig transaction coordinator but you know there's a lot of different ways you can you can take this uh, and ultimately it's Trying to reduce the need for um, our central server uh, as much as possible, and and so at least from the security standpoint, um, you you don't have to trust Casa with regard to keeping your keys safe because we only have one out of the five sets of keys, and we do provide uh, when you come on with us as a, a user, we actually provide you with the mechanism. For what we call the Sovereign Recovery process, which is uh, a set of open source software and, and guidelines for how you can completely route around Casa's server and basically um, sweep your wallet and move it uh, to another wallet without ever talking to our servers.
1: This is all so cool, man. It's just – it's so cool to think about like all these things that are being built now. And, and as a final – topic of conversation, you know, it, it sounds like all of these things are going back to, as you said, Casa's mission and maybe your personal mission uh, about increasing this this self-sovereignness, like giving users the way that I heard Zuko describe it was consent, you know, consenting to how uh, data is used is a big piece of self-sovereignty, uh, but consenting to like the, the systems that you use to protect your privacy and your sovereignty, like you're providing people with more choice, In Mm -hmm. in in how and who they trust. So my my final question would be whether it's on CASA's roadmap or not. Right. What do you think is the most valuable thing, you know, that you're not already building that somebody could be building right now Mm -hmm. that gets us to this future that you want to see where people have have more agency and, and more control?
0: Well, ultimately, and I think there are a few people who are are working on it, um, but the internet itself needs to be rearchitected. Uh, we still have far far too many gatekeepers uh, with regard to actual internet access. And so, you know as as long as we're reliant upon, one or two gatekeepers for internet access, you know, anything else that we're building on top of the internet is potentially compromised, at least at an individual level, not necessarily at a global level. Hmm. And so a true, you know, mesh network internet is something that I really hope to see in my lifetime. And I know there are uh, a few projects that are
1: working on it. That's really cool. And completely essential I, I think it shows that you have a very strong understanding of systems and and how they're layered and how they're interconnected and you know it, while most people in the space may not agree on what necessarily needs to be built when and how uh, the one thing everybody kind of agrees on is that the whole thing is very complex and the worst thing you can do is nothing that we all need to be trying these new technologies. If we if we're not qualified to build them, we at least need to be adopting them and helping test them in the wild so that we can get to this future that you're describing, uh, where, you know, each of us is safer, has more agency and and hopefully happier. I, I see the connection, of course, very strongly between in- increasing self sovereignty and just being fully realized, happy individuals that have a real place in the world instead of feeling as though we're just sort of at the mercy of uh whatever whatever attack vector is in vogue, right? Yeah, and I mean, I consider
0: myself to be very fortunate that, you know, I am well off enough that I can worry about these type of problems. I mean, the vast majority of people out there have many more pressing issues, you know, just, you know, day-to-day survival, you know, paying the bills and all of that 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 they're not even thinking about any of, of this stuff because it is the very, very bottom of their priority list. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great uh, to be able to, to even think about these, you know, somewhat trivial problems. They're somewhat trivial to most people, but I think, you know, from uh, the, the sort of 50,000 foot view and over a long enough time frame, I think that it will have a very large impact upon society.
1: Well, I feel very fortunate that people like yourself are thinking deeply about these issues and, and have the ability to do so and have the ability to build what they want instead of as you were, you know, working for insert email marketing firm here. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you've ended up doing what I believe that you and people like you were meant to do. And I'm, and I'm glad that you have such an ethical and humble perspective toward the space. So I'm thankful to you for that. Uh, and as ways of closing, uh, can you tell listeners anywhere they might want to go to learn more about you or learn more about Casa, use the technologies? Like, what what's the next step?
0: Yeah, I mean, generally, you know, people are are asking me, you know, how do I know, you know, what I should be investing in in this space or whatnot, and. Mm. and I almost always say you know invest in education like it don't ask me you know what crypto assets you should buy if you have to ask me then you shouldn't buy anything at all um, <laughs> so so that's why I, I have a, a Bitcoin resources page on my website which is uh, lop.net l-o-p-p p.net. net and uh, as for Casa our webpage is keys Casa that's uh, keys dot a s a. and um, you know this uh, this space is constantly evolving, and it is a full time job for me to even try to keep up with a small fraction of it anymore. Um, it is it has grown beyond I think the capability of any single one of us to try to keep up with. But you know, you and and other people who are trying to distill this information in a podcast is is providing a useful service for a lot of people.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and we do try to bring on a diversity of perspectives. But the one thing we I try to keep in common with my guests is that they are trying to build meaningful solutions to all of these problems that we've described and find ways in which all of these different people, as you said, with different perspectives, different motivations can collaborate, can work together. And I think the, the focus, the shared focus on at the very least education and advocacy is, is a useful one. You, we can always teach more and learn more. So for all you do there, I thank you. Our listeners thank you as well. I'll add those links to the description of the podcast so they can look into yourself and CASA and all those resources you mentioned. But Jameson, again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I look forward to another conversation soon. Thanks for
0: having me.